So we're going to look at Romans chapter 8. We've come to chapter 8 this morning, um, and you can open up in your Bibles. Uh, J.I. Packer, who you might know as the author of Knowing God, called Romans chapter 8 the climax of the New Testament. Uh, Because in this chapter, it was where we meet the Holy Spirit properly, and we discover just how high and wide and long and deep is his work in us. And we arrive in this chapter at the realization that God's plan for us is actually that he himself would come and live inside our own bodies and that he would call us his own sons and daughters. This is wondrous beyond our wildest dreams. And the whole Bible story never reveals anything more glorious for humanity than this. This is the summit of Mount Everest, with air so thin you can hardly breathe. And even the promise of eternal life, even the vision of heaven itself in Revelation with the golden city coming down from the clouds is only really glorious because God is there with us. Intimate, personal knowledge of God is the end goal of our whole being and the chief dignity of our human existence. And Romans chapter 8 discloses this as God's central plan for us. So this morning we get to go with Paul on this journey that he makes in the first half of Romans 8 and see where it will lead us now as 21st century Christians as we look around and it feels like the world that we grew up in is collapsing. So uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 and we're going to begin at verse 1 where Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And by that, Paul means there is no damnatory sentence of guilt. There is no judge saying guilty. In the word therefore, in verse one, Paul is collecting together and summarizing everything that he's been saying, not only in the chapter before, in chapter seven, but in his whole letter so far. And he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. And this idea of no condemnation is not a new idea in Romans, but an old one. It's really the same conclusion that Paul reached in chapter 5, verse 1, when he said, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be justified is the same as being not condemned. They're both legal terms and they're exact opposites. But to hear Paul state this negatively might help us because perhaps it helps us to realize that every time we hear a voice of condemnation, that is not the voice of God. If you hear a voice saying over you, you're no good, you'll never be forgiven for what you did, there's no hope for you, we know that cannot be the voice of God and it cannot be the truth because that voice is speaking condemnation. And God's word says that for those who are in Jesus, all condemnation is eradicated. And why? That's because of verse 2. Paul writes, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's quite complicated. That is Paul's thesis statement for chapter 8. And it sounds very dense uh, in this condensed form, but Paul is going to lay this out step by step in the rest of the chapter. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay, we're going to look at this 
step by step in the next 15 verses. There are six steps to follow in Paul's logical journey. They're quite short. Step one is the problem. The problem is that the law was too weak to save us. This is from verse three. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So in Paul's mind, the Old Testament law wasn't evil. It was, in fact, very good. And it wasn't weak in itself. But the problem was that our sinful nature, what Paul calls the flesh, made the law weak. And the reason was that sin is deep inside us. Sin dwells within us. And the law of God came to us from the outside. And the law was good, but the law couldn't get in. It couldn't get down deep enough to solve the real problem. And therefore, it was weakened by the dragon of the flesh. So step two, Jesus came in and slayed that dragon. Verse three goes on. Paul says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. Notice that that's a very cleverly worded verse. And the cleverness of the language in this verse reflects the cleverness of God's salvation plan. Jesus, the Son of God, was born into human flesh. He was incarnated, and he was truly human, but he only appeared to be the same as us sinners, because in reality, his flesh had no sin. And that that meant that when Jesus was condemned on the cross, his death was unjust, And that gave God the right to turn the tables on sin itself. So God leveraged that mother of all injustices to condemn sin itself, to condemn sin in the flesh. The real victim of the cross was sin. Jesus slayed the dragon that had tyrannized the law. That was step two. Now, step three, slaying the dragon benefited not only us, but also notice the law itself, because verse four goes on, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled or completed in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the law is still alive. The law was not defeated by the dragon of sin. It was only weakened and rendered incapable of saving people. And once the dragon of sin was slain, the law remained, and it could now be fulfilled in people who are driven by the power of the Holy Spirit. So notice here that God the Father has never given up on the plan that his people should keep his law. He's just found a new way to make that plan work. And it involves not only the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, but also the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. Step four is that the Holy Spirit applies the work of Jesus on the cross. So this is verses five through eight. Christians no longer live according to the flesh, but now live according to the spirit, setting our minds on the things of the spirit and therefore learning to please God. So it is God himself who leads us back to God. And where the law was weak, the spirit is strong. We are now empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, to please God, the Father, by laying down our lawless rebellion against him and humbly submitting ourselves to his law as the spirit leads us. 
You come to step five. The spirit wins because the spirit is within us. Verse nine says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Mighty words. God makes his home inside us. So in the previous chapter in Romans 7, verse 17, Paul identified his core problem being that sin dwells in me. Wretched man that I am. So our problem is indwelling sin. The poison of sin is inside us. It's in our bloodstream. And the law was the antidote, but we couldn't get it in us. The best we could do was rub it on our skin on the outside. And that didn't solve the problem. So now the spirit is mighty because the spirit comes into us. Indwelling sin is answered by an indwelling spirit who brings the antidote straight into our bloodstream and finally affects a cure. So this logic shows us how vitally important the role of the Holy Spirit is in the whole plan of salvation. He's absolutely essential. Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 9, that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So God dwelling in us is wonderful, it's mysterious, it's breathtaking, but it's also completely ordinary. It's not an optional extra for super-Christians. Paul says all Christians have the Holy Spirit of God living within them. He comes to us not at the end of our spiritual journey, but at the beginning. And Paul says that anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit is not a Christian. So John Stott wrote, without the Holy Spirit, true Christian life would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. Paul says the Holy Spirit is also our hope of resurrection life because he was the one who raised Jesus from the dead long ago. Paul says in verse 11, and this same spirit is also the one who's going to raise our bodies from the dead on the last day, if and only if he dwells in us now. So we see that all these mechanisms of salvation that Paul's talking about, they all work beautifully together like a Swiss watch. We cannot be saved by Jesus on the cross without also receiving the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and therefore also embracing a new life of holiness under the law. So again, Stott says, the end that God had in view when sending his son was not our justification only through freedom from the condemnation of the law, but also our holiness through obedience to the commandments of the law. And so now we come to the final cadence of this great symphony, the best part of all, which is step six. The Holy Spirit within us makes us God's own children. So we see that we are not like the animals controlled by our primal instincts. Neither are we human slaves, the puppets of sin, and neither are we just the human puppets of God. No, we have arrived now at true freedom. We are the sons and daughters of God. Nothing nobler, grander, or more magnificent will or could ever be said of us. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. All. The only condition in this phrase is who are led by the Spirit of God. And that's an interesting choice, an interesting word choice Paul makes here, because the word led here means to be led physically or led by accompaniment. So it's the word you'd use if a farmer took hold of an animal 
to lead it into a pen, or if two police officers in a courtroom put their hands on a defendant to lead him out of the courtroom. There's no violence implied in the word or even, even force necessarily. It's just the sense of a firm and steady hand going with you to accompany you on the journey. Someone who knows the way is very sure about where they want you to go. And that's the kind of leading that the Holy Spirit gives us now. All right, so these were Paul's steps. And from this point, Paul's going to begin his transition into the second half of Romans 8. And he's going to spell out next the consequences of this astonishing conclusion that we are sons and daughters of God. And the, ver- the, the, the chapter gets even more glorious at the end. And we're going to get on to that next week. But let's uh, pause and assess the journey so far and bring this word home to our hearts this morning. I want to think about where it is that we experience the Holy Spirit's work in our own lives. So back in verse 6, at the end of the verse, Paul wrote, To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And surely as he says this, he's not describing a future experience, but a present one. The Spirit gives us life and peace now, surely. We find ourselves alive to God, alert to spiritual realities, and thirsty for more of God's presence. And we also experience present-day peace, the inward integration of a quiet mind settled in the truth that leads to an internal calmness and an external harmony with our family and neighbors. The Spirit gives God's children life and peace now, as Paul says in verse 6, as we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And then also, he gives us confidence that we belong to God, as Paul says in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. So then surely, if we belong to Christ, then we have the Spirit of Christ within us. And if we have the Spirit of Christ within us, we know about it. It's not something we have to blindly believe. It accords with our experience. So as we bring the New Testament together, we we find that the Holy Spirit does a lot of things in our lives. First, he convicts us of sin in a way that leads us to repentance. We're blind to sin without his help. So if you've ever been prompted to confess your sin to God, that was the work of the Holy Spirit. Second, the Spirit produces faith that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. And if you believe that Jesus is God incarnate, who died on a cross to pay for your sin and was raised to life again, then that is the sure work of the Holy Spirit within you. Third, the Spirit teaches us God's Word. If you have the Holy Spirit, you love the Bible because the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. And, if you find, and you find yourself understanding the Bible as you read it. It opens to you like a flower because the Holy Spirit is your teacher. Fourth, he motivates us to keep God's law. We resolve within ourselves to give our best efforts to pleasing God. And that is at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Fifth, the Spirit grows in us the fruit of righteousness. We don't just keep God's law by wanting it, but out of the power of love and joy and peace and patience and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit that he grows within us. And we notice that these things are indeed growing. Sixth, he showers us with gifts, both natural and supernatural gifts, abilities like teaching 
or prophecy or tongues that we didn't have before. The Spirit raises each of us up to serve and lead in the body of Christ for the good of that body, building a church that exists for both worship and mission. The Holy Spirit is the prime mover in mission in the world, as we see in the book of Acts. And then seventh, I'll lump together a whole host of other experiences like peace and confidence, the presence of Jesus in prayer, inexpressible and glorious joy that Peter talks about, and the ability to discover contentment in all circumstances, as Paul talks about, even in our suffering. And I hope that as I list these things out for you, that your hearts are encouraged, that they are strangely warmed, and that you know exactly what I'm talking about. But maybe, just maybe, for some of you, there's also a twinge of disappointment or disconnection. Like these things seem very far away. Maybe you did experience them all once a long time ago, but now your heart has cooled and your love has lost its fervor. Or maybe even everything I said sounds completely foreign and you're not sure you've ever really experienced the work of the Holy Spirit at all. Can anything be done about that? Well, first, I want to say that the truth doesn't stop being true when you don't feel it. It doesn't depend on your personal experience. If you believe in Jesus and you're repenting of your sins, that is evidence enough that the Holy Spirit lives within you and that you belong to the Lord Jesus. But it's not wrong to want the experiences that Paul describes here, life and peace and comfort. These two are part of your inheritance As children of God, it belongs to you now. So it's like in a marriage, you're always married whether or not you feel you are. (laughs) Um, And there's some allowance for the feelings of love and intimacy to come and go because that is normal. But if the marriage is only on paper and never in your heart, we would say that was a pretty unhealthy marriage. And when it comes to our relationship with God through his Holy Spirit within us, there's going to be both a truth that we can rest on in our minds, whether or not we feel it. But we hope there are also times in our relationship with God where we really know deep in our hearts that we belong to him. So if that part has grown strangely cold in you, then there might be something we can do about it. Maybe it's time for some intentionality on our part. What might be the problem? And if we seek out the wisest and godliest men and women alive today and ask them, why aren't we experiencing the power of God within and around us as much as we want to, then they give us several answers. But probably the first and most compelling answer I've found is because there is so much noise. We can't connect with God when we're constantly distracting ourselves. So I want to read for you the verdict from a West African cardinal called Robert Cardinal Seurat. He wrote this book um, called The Power of Silence Against the Dictatorship of Noise. I've just started reading it and it's really great. Um, And here's his diagnosis. Quote, our world no longer hears God because it is constantly speaking at a devastating speed and volume in order to say nothing. Modern civilization does not know how to be quiet. When that happens, the word of God fades away, inaccessible and inaudible. In this hell of noise, man disintegrates and is lost. 
he is broken up into countless worries, fantasies, and fears. In order to get out of these depressing tunnels, he desperately awaits noise so that it will bring him a few consolations. But noise is a deceptive, addictive, and false tranquilizer. The tragedy of our world is never better summed up than in the fury of senseless noise that stubbornly hates silence. This age detests the things that silence brings us to, encounter, wonder, and kneeling before God." End quote. So if that's true, and if noise is such a major part of our problem, and it certainly makes sense to me that it is, then the natural remedy would be for us to rediscover the ancient way of silence. We know that many of our brothers and sisters in the past have lived lives of great silence and have done great things on the power of that silence. And maybe we will never attain to the hours of silent meditation that they managed, but maybe even just a little bit of silence in our lives will do a lot to help us reconnect with our God. If our days are currently spent rushing from thing to thing and filling up the spaces in between with news, Netflix, and time online, then I would definitely prescribe a little bit of daily silence as the first thing to try. So Lent is coming up. Ash Wednesday is just 10 days away. And maybe we would benefit from embracing a regular habit of silence as part of the discipline of that season. Richard Foster, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, has a whole chapter on silence, why we do it, how we do it, what it's good for. Um, and if you want to learn more about this, then I warmly recommend you read that chapter in his book. I think there's a free copy on the bookshelf right there. Um, but there are just two basic steps. I'll, I'll go over these as I close. There are two basic steps um, to creating silence. First is you create external silence and then internal silence. The first step is generally not too hard for most of us. The second step <clears throat> is generally harder. Um, <clears throat> so first, the external silence. This just means that you put yourself in a situation where you're alone and physically comfortable with no irritating noises and small chance of being interrupted by anyone. If you don't have children, this is probably fairly easy. Um, if you do have children living at home, especially young children, this kind of silence might never happen. Um, but you can make it happen, at least occasionally, uh, especially if there are two parents around, then I would challenge each of you to give the other an hour of silence a week, an hour to be alone and out of the house and connect with God. You really do have to leave the house. Yeah, especially if there's noise at home. Um, and in COVID, there aren't many places to go, but thankfully the weather's mild right now and you can take your silent hour out in the woods or in a park, or if all else fails and the weather's bad and it's raining, go and sit in your car. I'm serious about this. I've done it a few times. Uh, you can drive your car somewhere quiet and pretty, look out over a lake or some woods, climb into the back seat and be silent in your car. Go into your car and shut the door and pray to your father in secret. It's nice and quiet and God will meet you there. Or maybe if your children sleep consistently at night and you yourself are not too sleep deprived, then you can set an alarm and get up before they wake up and meet God in a quiet house. But however you do it, carve out for yourself some time of external silence. And if you can do it every day, then do it every day. 
Now it's going to be best if it's a wide open-ended time, because once you start practicing silence, you can really get lost in it and you can forget about the clock and just be with God for a long time. So don't start experimenting with silence right before your big presentation. When you do it, turn off your phone, quiet all the noises, forget about all your responsibilities and sit with the external silence. That's step one. Now, step two is harder, and that's to create the internal silence. Because the moment you get quiet, your brain is going to go crazy, especially if you haven't been silent for a long time. There's going to be a million of millions of thoughts and memories and daydreams and items for the to-do list. And you could spend that hour very productively getting a whole planning done, um, but that's not going to help you meet with God. So you need to quiet those voices too. And there are several ways to do that. Uh, many people have found great benefit in slowly reciting in their minds a part of scripture that they know from memory. That's a great thing to do. Um, maybe listening to some quiet music, especially like choral music that helps you to actually embrace silence. A little bit of sound can help. Um, or maybe repeating a small part of scripture over and over in your mind while you think about your breathing, kind of contemplative silence is uh, good too. They, they help calm those internal voices. Um, but I want to leave you with a tool that um, I picked up in my teens from my youth group leader. Uh, he would take us on retreats and he would practice what he called a, a kind of meditation. Um, and I, uh, it's great to do in groups, but it's also great to do alone. And I still find it very, very helpful for creating internal silence. And the idea of this is to take an imaginary journey that brings you to a meeting with Jesus. All right, so let me briefly describe this one to you. Um, it's, a, it's a tool for creating a kind of internal silence that makes room for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. So you start off sitting comfortably in a quiet, peaceful environment, and you begin by noticing your breathing and any quiet sounds that are around you. And then you focus on how your body feels. So you do a couple of exercises to experience both tension and relaxation in your body. So um, you might try spreading out your right hand so the thumb and little finger are as far apart as possible until it hurts and then relax. Or you can point your left big toe away from your body so that it's as far away from you as possible until it hurts and then relax. And you experience the difference between tension and relaxation in your body. Spend about five minutes on this part of settling in and that puts you in the right frame to begin the imaginative journey. When you take the journey, you start off outside in your mind, somewhere that's alone and large um, and, and also uncomfortable. You start off in a place of discomfort. So maybe you imagine yourself in the midst of a vast desert where you're completely alone and very thirsty or on a snowy hilltop where you're cold and hungry. And you imagine yourself walking in a huge space with no one around. And take time to imagine every sensation, every feeling of your body that goes along with that experience. And as you take the journey, you slowly discover something that brings you relief, brings you physical relief. So maybe in the middle of the hot desert, there's a huge shady tree with a pool of water underneath. Or on the snowy hilltop, you find a big house that's uh, got a great room with a fire burning. Um, and as you discover that thing, you're filled with hope and you approach the new discovery and you find refreshment. 
your body is soothed and comforted. So you take this journey in your mind slowly, you experience it deeply in your imagination, and getting to this part might take 15 minutes or so. The next part is that Jesus comes to join you in this place where that has comforted you. And, and you find out that it's actually his place. And as he comes to join you, he brings some food for you to share. And you eat together and you feel completely satisfied, welcome, warm, loved, and provided for. And then after you've eaten together, Jesus asks you a question. And I can't tell you what that question's gonna be. But the rest of the time, which might be another half hour or so, or maybe more, is just a conversation with, between you and the Lord in that quiet, safe, comfortable place. So that's a great tool for creating internal silence that I still use, and I offer it to you for your encouragement and for deepening your walk with God. I have found that it connects with those things that Paul talks about in Romans 8, with the voice of God that calls out to the Father, with the sense of life and peace that comes with the Spirit, with the challenge of God, a conviction of sin, um, and with the encouragement of God for the work that he wants me to do. So I really pray that you find the life and peace that is the heritage of the children of God. Amen. <laughs>